Welcome to Criminal AF. For those of you joining the show for the first time, you're about to be introduced to a couple of somewhat funny guys from Connecticut who love to talk about true crime and have some fun doing it. While Criminal AF is best described as a comedic informative true crime podcast, there will be detailed descriptions of murder, rape, torture, and any other crime that would haunt you in your sleep. Criminal AF is made by adults for adults, so there will be adult conversations and there will be vulgar language. Like fuck! You know, the way most adults speak. The intention of Criminal AF is to keep the atmosphere light, fun, and inclusive, but they will not withhold any information, regardless of how brutal, disgusting, or gut-wrenching it may be. Now, it's understandable that Criminal AF is not for everyone, which is okay, but it's asked that you at least give it a listen. If it's not for you, well, thanks for checking it out. See ya. But if it is... Welcome to the debauchery. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and Happy Holidays to all the other people celebrating these magnificent celebrations going on in the month of December. On this episode, we are bringing you a Patreon preview loaded with bonus episodes from the Serial Holic. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Gary Quarter. And this is Criminal as What's good, criminals, debauched, and all you fuckers out there, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I'm Dave Jari, and with me, as you all know, is my co-host, Garrett Corner. How we doing? This episode is brought to you by our good friends over at HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number Number one one meal kit. We got to give a shout out to the wonderful and amazing Renee Prada and my old friend Donnie Blake for becoming the newest members of our fucked up family. I've known Donnie and his brothers for years, going back to my high school days, so it's great to have them as a part of our little group we got going on here. Now for the housekeeping, head on over to criminalasfuck.com for all of your criminal AF needs. Check out our episodes, videos, Patreon, reviews, and of course, our merch. So yeah, we're adding new styles and designs, and most recently we added uh, our own coffee and tea line. So the coffee and tea line, it's imported fresh directly from the farm to your doorstep, cutting out the middleman and what could possibly be weeks or even months sitting on a store shelf. So go check that out by going directly to criminalafshop.com. You can also go visit all of our friends over at WelcomeToTheDebauchery.com where you can find a plethora of independent podcasts joining together to create one beautiful podcast world. We have ourselves, Fright Flick, FMK, True Crime University, and the list goes on. So go show some love at WelcomeToTheDebauchery.com. And here's Jay with a little message from Fright Flick FMK. Do you like scary movies? If your answer is yes, then you need to check out my show, Fright Flick FMK. My name is Jay. And along with my co-host, Gentleman Jack, I watch and discuss horror movies and tell you what I think about them. New or old, mainstream or underground, no horror flick is safe from my warped opinion. So go check out Fright Flick FMK now. We are on all major podcast platforms and YouTube. Also be sure to follow the show on all major social media sites. But be warned, we are not your mama's podcast, and this promo will be the longest amount of time you'll hear me talk without swearing or cracking an offensive joke. Now go grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and give us a listen. Just want to send Jay our well wishes as he recovers from Achilles surgery. So rest up, buddy, and hoping for a speedy recovery. 
Finally, and possibly most importantly, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Good Pods and leave us a five-star rating, a positive review, and be sure to share with your family and friends. It costs you absolutely nothing to do, but just a mere moment of your day, and it'll help us immensely in spreading the word that Criminal AF is the number one true crime podcast in the world. All right, it's time to fuck this episode in the mouth. As we discussed earlier, we are giving you a sneak peek into our bonus episodes of The Serial Holic, now available only on our Patreon. We'll talk about Slenderman, Thor Christensen, the tragic case of Dorothy Scott, Junko Furuta, and more. So grab your favorite drink, some snacks, sit back, relax, kick your feet up, and tell everyone in your house to shut the fuck up, because it's now time for The Serial Holic, brought to you by Criminal AF. Enjoy. On August 6, 1984, a construction worker working alongside Santa Ana Canyon Road in Anaheim, California, discovered what appeared to be human bones about 30 feet from the roadway. Authorities were contacted, and the partially charred skull, pelvis, arm, and two thigh bones of a human were collected, along with a broken watch and a turquoise ring. What made this discovery even more troubling was that mixed in with human bones, there were bones of a dog, apparently placed on top after a wildfire made its way through the area just two years prior, in October of 1982, resulting in the charred remains. The question was now, who did these bones belong to, and how did they get there? A week later, on August 14, 1984, the remains were identified through dental records, as that being Dorothy Jane Scott, a 32-year-old mother living in Stanton, California, with her aunt and four-year-old son, who went missing four years earlier, at 11 p.m. on May 28, 1980. Dorothy's mother, Vera, also identified the turquoise ring as being Dorothy's, as well as the watch, which had stopped at 12.32 a.m. on May 29th, about an hour after her disappearance. I'm Dave Jari, and I am the Serial Holic. According to family and friends, Dorothy was a devout Christian who didn't drink or do drugs and preferred to stay in with her son on her free time. Her seemingly quiet and peaceful life was disrupted months earlier when Dorothy began receiving disturbing phone calls at her work in her home from an unknown male who would profess his love for her and gradually escalated into his intention to kill her, making such statements as, When I get you alone... I'll cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. One day, the stalker called and told Dorothy to Go outside. I left you a gift. When Dorothy walked out to her car, 
she found a dead rose on her windshield. The mystery man would call her almost daily, and Dorothy even had the police set up a voice recorder and trace her, but no one could ever figure out who was making these calls. Because of this harassment, Dorothy considered purchasing a handgun, and a week prior to her disappearance, she began taking karate lessons. On May 28, 1980, Dorothy drove to an employee meeting at her work with co-workers Conrad Bostrin and Pam Head. While getting ready to leave the meeting, Conrad started to become ill, and Dorothy noticed a strange bump on his arm that appeared to be inflamed. Dorothy insisted that Conrad be brought to the hospital. Along the way, Dorothy stopped at her parents' home in Anaheim to check on her son and to explain to her parents that she had to take her friend to the hospital. She also changed from wearing a black scarf to a red one, which will be an important note later. At around 9 p.m., Dorothy, Conrad, and Pam arrived at UC Irvine Medical Center, where it was determined that Conrad had suffered a black widow spider bite, was treated accordingly, and discharged at 11 p.m. Still a little weak from the bite, Dorothy insisted on getting her car and driving it to the entrance, so Conrad didn't have to walk so far. As Dorothy left, Conrad and Pam walked to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription and then made their way out of the building. There, they saw Dorothy's white station wagon speeding towards them and then suddenly turned right, exiting out of the parking lot. Both Conrad and Pam assumed that Dorothy had to leave in a hurry because of an emergency with her son and thought nothing of it as they called for another ride. After a couple of hours had passed and no word from Dorothy, Conrad and Pam became nervous and called the police. At 4.30 a.m. on May 29th, Dorothy's car was found engulfed in flames in an alley about 10 miles from the hospital. However, Dorothy Scott was nowhere to be found. Two weeks after her disappearance, the mystery caller struck again, this time calling Dorothy's mother, Vera. Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Vera stated that she was. Well, I've got her. From that point on, every Wednesday afternoon for the next four years, when Vera was home alone, the phone would ring. Sometimes Vera would answer. Other times she wouldn't. In April of 1984, the man called during the evening, and this time, Dorothy's father, Jacob Scott, answered. The caller quickly hung up, and the call stopped. Until August 1984, when Dorothy's remains were discovered. Then the afternoon calls would start again, only when Vera was home alone. Some speculate that Jacob Scott possibly knew the killer and would be able to recognize his voice. A potential motive for Dorothy's murder surfaced after the local paper, the Orange County Register, published a story on June 12, 1980, regarding Dorothy's disappearance, and they too received the phone call. The caller stated that he killed Dorothy because she was unfaithful to him. I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. So I killed her. The caller knew specific details not included in the June 12th story. Like the fact that on the night of her disappearance, she switched from wearing a black scarf to a red one and that Conrad had gone to the hospital for a spider bite, claiming, 
Dorothy called me from the hospital that night. But this was disputed by her friend, Pam Head, who stated that she was with Dorothy the entire time at the hospital and never called anyone. Some speculate that the killer perceived Conrad, Dorothy's co-worker, as the other man. Investigators strongly believe with 100% certainty that the caller is Dorothy Scott's killer, but with no further evidence since her murder, her death, and her killer's identity remains a mystery to this day. Junko Furuta was an average teenage girl attending Yashio Minami High School in Misato, Japan. She was beautiful, very popular in school, and excelled in all of her classes. Unlike many of her classmates, Junko didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. She had her life goals planned out and dreamed of having a successful future. Then she crossed paths with another student named Hiroshi Miyano. Hiroshi was a school bully and often bragged about his ties with the Japanese mafia, known as Yakuza. Hiroshi would pester Junko to go out on a date with him, but she always refused. In November of 1998, Hiroshi and his friends, Shinto Minato, Joe Agura, and Yasushi Watanabe were hanging out at a local park. At 8.30 that evening, Junko was riding her bike home after completing her shift at work. Hiroshi and his friends, who are known as gang rapists, noticed her riding up towards the park and they knew exactly what to do. As Junko rode by, Hiroshi kicked her bike. She fell to the ground and Shinji stepped in. Playing the random nice guy, Shinji helped Junko up from the ground and asked her why she was riding in such a dangerous area. With Junko believing that Shinji was genuine, she accepted his offer of making sure she got home safe. She never made it home. Shinji brutally raped Junko and then brought her back to the park where he, Hiroshi, Joe, and Yasushi took turns raping her for the next several hours. They brought Junko back to Shinji's house where she was told to tell his parents that she was his girlfriend or face more abuse. Junko's parents grew concerned when she didn't return home. They were about to call the police when they received a phone call from Junko saying that she ran away and that she was fine. Little did her parents know she didn't run away. She wasn't fine, and she was forced to make that call. Over the next 44 days, Junko was raped over 400 times by Hiroshi, Shinji, Joe, Yasushi, and they brought other friends to have their turn with her. Shinji's parents grew concerned when Junko showed visible signs of distress, but because of their fear of Shinji's ties with Yakuza, they reluctantly stayed silent. Junko faced more than just a gang rape. The group would insert iron bars, skewers, fireworks, scissors, and a hot light bulb into her vagina and anus. She was so brutally tortured, she was unable to urinate and defecate properly. She was to eat insects and drink her own body fluids. Her genitals and eyes were burned with hot wax, cigarettes, and a lighter. They even strung her up to the ceiling and was beaten like a pinata with golf clubs and iron bars. Police were called to the residence twice once by Junko herself, but they failed to do anything, presumably because the boys were associated with Yakuza. Finally, on January 4th, 1989, Junko and the boys were playing a game of Mahjong. Junko beat them, 
and her prize. They brutally killed her, placed her body in a 55-gallon drum, and filled it with concrete. Two weeks later, Hiroshi and Joe were brought in by police regarding a separate gang rape incident. Thinking that they were being questioned about Junko, and thinking that the other was going to sell them out. They both admitted to the kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder of Junko Furuta. Shinji and Yasushi were arrested not long after. At the end of their trial, they all received light sentences. Hiroshi Miyano received 20 years in prison. Shinji Minato received 5 to 9 years. Joe Agura got 8 years. And Yasushi Watanabe was sentenced to 5 to 7 years. It is widely believed that the judge who issued the sentence was under intense pressure from Yakuza. Criminal AF would be back after this quick break. Hello, Fresh! Tis the season for giving and gathering. And with Hello, Fresh, it could be the season of saving. Actually, save money this month with fresh recipes delivered, cheaper than takeout. And with pre portioned ingredients, you'll never waste money on excess food. Say hello. Hello. Hello, Dave. To a stressless holiday season with the help of HelloFresh. Skip the grocery store and save time with easy, tasty recipes delivered to your door. And spend your time this month shopping for gifts and sipping cocoa, not stuck in the checkout line. Sign up for HelloFresh and get everything you need to whip up a fresh, tasty meal delivered right to your door. Just choose your recipes, select a delivery date, and relax knowing that dinner is on the way, just like Santa Claus. Dinner is delivered to your door. Uh, I've ordered everything to my front door, including food now with HelloFresh, and I, yeah. I, it, you can't beat it. It's it, the ease. The convenience. Yes, it, it takes it to a whole nother level. You know, with us working 60-hour work weeks, yeah. the podcast, wife, two kids, HelloFresh just makes dinner time easy. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And I, the thing that I like is that when I get my box in, I can break everything down quick and easy, 20 minutes, knock out a, a meal, meal prep it for the week, and we're ready to roll. You're covered with HelloFresh. And never have to like worry about going to the grocery store, just having everything all pre-portioned right in the box. It makes it so convenient. Make hosting this holiday a joy by going to HelloFresh.com slash CriminalAFFree and use code CriminalAFFree for free breakfast for life. You get one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash criminal AF free with code criminal AF free. HelloFresh, America's, America's number one meal kit. With the amount of graphic research I do for this show on my phone, tablet, and computer, if someone didn't know me, they'd think I was an active serial killer or someone really into death and murder. I mean, which I kind of am. But still, I don't want those who have no business seeing my online activity to gain access or to get hacked. That's why I use NordVPN. With NordVPN, I can avoid government tracking, hackers, and other forms of exploitation by allowing me to change my IP address, virtually disappearing on the web. So go to the show notes on this episode and click the link for NordVPN to receive 69% off plus three extra months. Now back to Criminal AF. Thor Christensen may not have as much notoriety, but his penchant for death and destruction was on par with the most notable of serial killers. He was a necrophile. Being dead was not a requirement for him to have sex, as with Kemper, for example. It was more of a fetish for him. He had a living girlfriend whom he did have sex with, but he had curiosities. Curiosities that he had to act upon. 
he couldn't control his urges and decided he had to kill to get what he wanted. I'm sure you're aware of what necrophilia is, but it goes deeper than what most people think. Necrophilia is where the perpetrator gets sexual pleasure in having sex with the dead. Sometimes, these dead are not fresh, but dug up from graves in a putrefied or mummified condition. Some get off just by handling bones. Some necrophiliacs actually need to feed off of the body to reach full sexual pleasure. Necrophilia can range from just holding a dead body, to foreplay and sex, to eating the whole corpse. Thor Christensen escapes the list of America's top serial killers, but his story is just as deserving to be told. Thor Christensen was born in Denmark on December 28, 1957. When he was five years old, he emigrated to the United States with his parents. His family settled in Inglewood, California, and then moved to Solvang, where his father, niece, ran a restaurant. Christensen was initially a good student and had a high IQ. When he was a junior in high school, he began smoking marijuana, drinking, and neglecting his schoolwork. He moved out of his parents' house, dropped out of high school, and began working as a gas station attendant. He was known to be a quiet person, but with a quick temper, often taking his anger out on small animals, torturing and killing them. Christensen became obsessed with fantasies of killing women and having sex with their corpse. Around this time, he had stolen a 22 caliber pistol from a friend and began to frequent the campus of the University of California near Santa Barbara, looking for girls wanting to hitchhike. Thor, just 19 years old, began to take his fascinations a bit further. In late 1976 and early 1977, female students at the University of California in Santa Barbara were terrorized by a grim series of look-alike murders. On December 6, 1976, he committed his first murder. 21-year-old Jacqueline Ann Rook, abducted from a bus stop it was from the Isla Vista area near the University of California in Santa Barbara. Also, on the same day, he picked up Marianne Saris, who was a 19-year-old waitress who was hitchhiking in the same area as Jacqueline. On January 18, 1977, Thor picked up Patricia Marie Laney from another bus stop and murdered her. All of the girls had been shot in the head by a 22 caliber pistol. Their bodies had been sexually violated post-mortem. Patricia Laney's corpse was discovered on January 19th in nearby Refugio Canyon, near Galetta. The police recognized the pattern when Jacqueline Rook was found dead in the same area on January 20th. Christensen was one of the several hundreds of people questioned in the case by police in February of 1977. He was cited as a minor in possession of alcohol it was not considered a suspect at the time, although police did confiscate a 22 caliber pistol from his car. The police found skeletal remains that belonged to Mary Saris in Drum Canyon on May 22, 1977. Thor Christensen was nothing more than an afterthought at this time, a former potential person of interest who was written off as a teenage punk with a drinking problem. After these three murders, 
Christensen moved to Oregon for a time before moving back to Santa Barbara County to complete his high school diploma at a junior college. He moved into an apartment with Kerry Solis, a woman in her 20s whom he met while she was hitchhiking. While he was living with Solis, Christensen tried unsuccessfully to kill another victim. Linda Preston, age 24, who was thumbing rides in Hollywood on April 19, 1979. When Christensen picked her up, they traveled several blocks before he drew a gun and pumped a bullet into her left ear. Bleeding profusely, the young woman managed to leap from his car, escaping on foot to find medical aid. She was severely injured and taken to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, where the bullet was removed. On May 26, 1979, Christensen killed 22-year-old Laura Sue Benjamin. Her body was found in a culvert near Angeles Forest Highway and Big Tajunga Road in the San Gabriel Mountains, north of Los Angeles. In July of that year, fate would have Christensen and Linda Preston crossing paths again at the Bottom Line Bar in Hollywood, and Preston immediately recognized him, reporting him to the police. Because of the similarities between Linda Preston's case and the murders of Jacqueline Rook, Mary Ann Saris, Patricia Laney, and Laura Benjamin, Christensen became a suspect in all four of the Isla Vista murders. On July 27th, Christensen was formally charged with three counts of first-degree murder in Santa Barbara. Because California did not have the death penalty at the time, he was sentenced to life and sent to Folsom State Prison. His stay in the penitentiary was short, however, because on May 30th, 1981, Christensen was stabbed to death by an unknown inmate. Patricia Laney, Thor's third victim, has become a prominent symbol for groups that advocate against violence toward women in the Santa Barbara area. She had been a community volunteer with organizations that advocated against domestic violence. The Isla Vista Juggling Festival was dedicated in Patricia's memory to benefit the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center, commencing in 1977. With its latest festival, its 47th, occurring in April of this year. The decade of the serial killer instilled an atmosphere of fear that effectively brought an end of an era in Isla Vista. Hitchhiking was not the dangerous and taboo thing that it is nowadays. Everyone hitchhiked in the 70s. Mostly all college students and young teens hitchhiked daily. This all changed after the likes of Thor Christensen, Ed Kemper, and the Toolbox Killers preyed on and victimized the women of California. The happy-go-lucky time of the late 60s and 70s was over. These murders and many others, led to large demonstrations of those who were opposed to violence towards women and those in favor of better transportation for young people. Thor Christensen may not be at the top of the list like Bundy or Kemper, but his crimes were memorable enough to change the culture not only in California, but throughout America. The days of teens and young adults living carefree came to an end. We have now become more aware more suspicious. But still, history tends to repeat itself. 
Regardless of how many stories we share or warnings we may give, there is still someone, somewhere, waiting for a woman to leave her guard down. And eventually, she will. This story of Jennifer Dulos begins in 2004, when she married Fotis Dulos in Manhattan, New York. Both graduates of the prestigious Brown University. Jennifer went on to obtain a master's degree in writing, and Fotis later earning a master's degree in finance. They settled in Farmington, Connecticut, where they raised their five children in a six-bedroom estate, with Jennifer opting to be a stay-at-home mom while Fotis established a successful luxury home development company. What would appear to many outsiders as a picture-perfect family ultimately became one of infighting and adultery. In May of 2017, Jennifer filed for divorce after learning Fotis was having an affair with a woman named Michelle Traconis. In June of 2017, Jennifer moved to New Canaan, Connecticut with the children and over the next two years, the divorce proceedings became very contentious. That June, Jennifer would plead to the court to be given temporary full custody of the children, claiming in her words that Fotis became enraged, appeared out of control, and blamed me for scheduling activities for the children on a Saturday morning. I was scared and tried to leave the room. He followed me upstairs and into the bedroom, where he shut the door and blocked it so that I was trapped as he verbally attacked me and physically intimidated me. She went on to say, I am very afraid of my husband. I know that filing for divorce and filing this motion will enrage him. I know he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. Jennifer would also claim Fotis even made it known to her that he purchased a handgun. The judge ruled against her and gave them both shared custody. As the battle waged on, Fotis would claim that he was being threatened by Jennifer as well, making the unsubstantiated claim that Jennifer would have the mafia break his legs. Then, on May 24, 2019, after dropping her children off at school, Jennifer disappeared. Almost immediately, Fotis became a person of interest in her disappearance. During the investigation, police would find a large blood stain as well as blood spatter in Jennifer's garage. Surveillance footage from that day shows Jennifer arriving home at 8 a.m. and then at 10.25 a.m., a man resembling Fotis driving away in Jennifer's 2017 Black Sherry Suburban. The Suburban was found abandoned in a local park. Later, surveillance shows Fotis and his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, throwing away several garbage bags and dumpsters throughout the city of Hartford, Connecticut. After searching those locations, clothes and sponges with Jennifer's blood were found. Fotis had also borrowed a car from his assistant, and then when he returned it, the car had been detailed, and Fotis instructed the assistant to have the seats replaced and dispose of the old ones. The assistant kept the seats and turned them over to police where they discovered trace amounts of blood. On June 1st, 2019, Fotis and Michelle were arrested for tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution. 
they were released after posting bond. An extensive search was conducted at the Hartford landfill with the hopes of finding Jennifer's remains, to no avail. Fotis and Michelle were arrested again in September for tampering with evidence. After finally ruling that the amount of Jennifer's blood that had been discovered would make it impossible to sustain life, Fotis was arrested for murder on January 7, 2020. Michelle Traconis was also arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. During the announcement that Fotis Dulos had been charged in the murder of Jennifer, state police all wore purple ties, which is the color for domestic violence awareness. And in what would be a symbolic slap in the face, Fotis Dulos was being escorted in handcuffs by a female detective and a female state trooper. Weeks later, while out on bail, Fotis Dulos failed to appear for a scheduled hearing, and another arrest warrant was issued. Authorities were sent to the home of Dulos, and through a window in his garage, found him unresponsive in an apparent suicide attempt from carbon monoxide poisoning. He was rushed to the hospital, but he never regained consciousness, and died two days later. In a suicide note left behind, Dulos left no closure, insisting, despite the mounting evidence against him, that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of his wife. As of 2023, the other woman, Michelle Traconis, is free on bond and lives in Colorado with her daughter. Traconis maintains her innocence and states that she was unaware of any connection between Fotis Dulos and the disappearance of his wife, even though there is sufficient evidence to the contrary. To this day, Jennifer Dulos has yet to be found. Kellyanne Bates aspired to be a school teacher, which would seem to be her calling since she loved being around younger children. She began babysitting as soon as she was old enough, but fate would change her course when she met the friend of the parents she was babysitting for. At the age of 14, Kellyanne crossed paths with 48-year-old James Patterson Smith. Their introduction was cordial enough that Kellyanne allowed Smith to walk her home that night. Smith continued to manipulate Kellyanne's young mind, and soon, they began dating. Kellyanne's parents knew she had a boyfriend. They had spoken to him on the phone. But two years had passed and they still hadn't met him. When Kellyanne's entire demeanor changed, including less frequent showering and spending long hours curled up on the couch, her parents felt an introduction was long overdue. So it understandably came as a shock when they finally met and discovered that their daughter's boyfriend was a 50-year-old divorcee. Feeling that forbidding the relationship would push Kellyanne further away, they reluctantly allowed the relationship to go on. Not long after their meeting, Kellyanne told her parents that she got a new job and would be home less often, when in fact she was now living with Smith. On one of the rare occasions that Kellyanne would return home, her mother noticed that the side of her face was red and swollen. She claimed that she had gotten into a fight with some other girls. In November of 1995, Kellyanne left her parents' house for good, and she would never see her parents again. Her parents received a rare and brief phone call from time to time, but soon, even those would stop. On April 16, 1996, Robert Patterson Smith walked to a nearby police station to report that Kellyanne 
now 17, had drowned in a bathtub and had died. Police rushed to the residence and found Kellyanne, naked and dead on the bathroom floor, and they knew immediately that there was a lot more to the story. They would soon discover that over a four-week period, Kellyanne was tortured beyond comprehension. She had numerous stab wounds all over her body caused by forks, knives, and scissors, some wounds healing, some fresh. She had scalding water burns to her buttocks and left leg. Burns on her thighs were caused by a hot iron. Both eyes were gouged out, believed to be done at least three weeks prior to her death, and had stab wounds and empty eye sockets. Her ears, nose, mouth, and genitalia had been mutilated with stab wounds inside each orifice. Her hands and kneecaps were crushed, rendering her unable to escape. She had wounds that were caused by a spade and pruning shears, had ligature marks around her neck, and she was partially scalped. Numerous strands of hair were found on the radiator, leading investigators to believe that Smith had tied Kellyanne there by her hair. She was also starved and dehydrated, having not been given food or water for weeks. All of these injuries occurred before death. Robert Patterson Smith's defense was that Kellyanne liked the abuse and would ask to be tortured. It took the jury one hour to come back with a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years, but the judge vowed Smith would never walk the streets again. Criminal AF would be back after this quick break. Now back to Criminal AF. On January 9th, 2002, in Oregon City, Oregon, Ashley Pond was running late for school. The 12-year-old still had a 10-minute walk to the bus stop from the Newell Creek Village apartment where she lived with her mother. Ashley rushed out the door, but never made it to school. In fact, she never made it to the bus stop. What followed was a massive search for Ashley, a popular student who enjoyed being a member of the swim and dance teams. The local and state police, along with the FBI, had no leads in her disappearance. The local news station picked up the story and began interviewing neighbors and friends of Ashley. 13-year-old Miranda Gaddis spoke with the reporter at the very bus stop that her and Ashley would walk to every day. It's really hard to believe that having one of your friends or something, it's just really different and really sad. Then on March 8, 2002, Miranda would go missing also. Living in the same complex as Ashley, Miranda's mother had left for work 30 minutes before Miranda had to catch the bus and gave her daughter a kiss goodbye. That would be the last time anyone saw her alive. Considering that both girls had many similarities, same grade, same school activities, same apartment complex, and both disappearing on their way to the bus stop, police and the FBI believed that the girls knew who their attacker was. Police questioned all the residents in the apartment complex, but that was just standard protocol. They had their suspicions, and one man immediately stood out amongst the rest. Ward Weaver, whose daughter was the same age as well as good friends with both Ashley and Miranda, lived along the route both girls would walk every morning on the way to the bus stop. It was also a previous accusation by Ashley that Weaver had tried to rape her, 
but there wasn't enough proof to charge him. With his suspicion becoming known to the surrounding community, Weaver set up an interview with the same reporter who had interviewed Miranda weeks prior. He took the news crew on a tour of his home to show that he had nothing to hide. The entire case broke open on August 13, 2002, when Weaver's 19-year-old son called 911 to report that Weaver tried to rape his girlfriend. When police arrived, he also said that his father confessed to raping and killing Ashley and Miranda. This was the ammo the police needed. They arrested Ward Weaver and then obtained a search warrant for his property. On August 24th, they found the body of Miranda Gaddis inside a box in the storage shed. Ashley Pond was found a day later, buried under a slab of concrete in the backyard. Remember when Weaver toured his house with the news crew? That was so he could taunt the families and police. Weaver and the reporter stood over the same concrete slab Ashley was buried under, and Weaver stood next to a freezer at which time contained Miranda's remains. Weaver was an evil, violent, and sadistic man who pled guilty to their rape and murder in order to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to two life sentences in prison. For 21-year-old Chris Kramers and 22-year-old Lisanne Froon, both college graduates from the Netherlands, their trip to Panama was going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Their plan, a two-week hiking trip, followed by a four-week humanitarian mission working with children in the local villages, began on March 15, 2014. After touring various areas throughout Panama, they arrived in Boquette on March 29th and were staying with a host family for the remainder of their trip. On April 1st, Chris and Lisanne planned to take a hike in the nearby clouded rainforest around a Baru volcano. But first, they shared brunch with two fellow Dutchmen they had met in their short time in Boquette. When they returned, they gathered some belongings for their hike and thought it would be fun to take their host family's dog along with them. They described these events in a Facebook post just prior to their 11 a.m. departure. Within a few hours, the dog had returned to the host family, but not Chris and Lisanne. Thinking that the two young women must have gone on a different adventure, the host family didn't notify the authorities until the following day after Chris and Lisanne missed an appointment for a guided tour. A search party was launched involving aerial surveillance and foot patrols. Numerous people were questioned, including fellow hikers, locals, and the two Dutchmen that shared brunch with the women a day prior, to no avail. Chris and Lisanne had simply vanished. Within days, the parents of both women, along with the investigators from the Netherlands, arrived in Boquette to begin their own search and rescue mission, but even they came up empty. The search for Chris and Lisanne went on for weeks, and at the 10-week mark, just as the search was about to be called off, a farmer found a backpack in a rice paddy. She swore that the backpack was placed there recently because she had worked the same fields the day before and it wasn't there. The farmer brought the backpack to authorities in which they discovered two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, a sand's passport, a water bottle, and two bras. Everything was in pristine condition, not what you would expect after being in the open environment for 10 weeks. What intrigued authorities the most about the contents in the backpack were Chris and Lisanne's cell phones, along with Lisanne's camera. They were able to extract the photos and call logs from each of the items. Beginning a few hours into their hike on April 1st, the first phone call to the International Emergency Number, 112, was made. Over the course of the next four days, 
77 total attempts to call 112-911, and both of their families back in the Netherlands were made. None of these attempts were able to go through because of the dense forest, except one. A call to 112 had connected but was dropped after two seconds. Authorities also learned that on April 6, several unsuccessful attempts to unlock Chris's phone had been made, and by April 10th, both phones were dead. The pictures they had taken began as any other hike through the rainforest would. Selfies, pictures of the panoramic views, and photos of each of the women full of wonder and excitement. This was followed by 90 flash pictures taken on April 8th in the dead of night between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. Several were just random pictures of the ground and surrounding terrain. Others contained some of their clothing and other belongings scattered about. The most troubling one was what appeared to be Chris's head with blood coming from her temple. Over the next few weeks, a pair of Chris's shorts were found neatly folded on a rock as well as other articles of clothing a few kilometers away from where the backpacks were discovered, and then shortly after, their remains were found. First it was a pelvis and shoe, belonging to Lisanne, with her foot still inside, then the rest of the remains were scattered about. What made this discovery even more troubling was that Lisanne's remains showed natural decomposition. There was still some flesh and skin left on her bones. Chris's remains, however, were completely free of flesh and appeared to be bleached. Their deaths were ruled to be accidental, believing that during the night, the girls had fallen into a ravine and washed downstream. However, after receiving an anonymous tip, an independent investigation was conducted in 2017, and now foul play has been ruled to have contributed to their deaths. Their story is still unsolved. Slender Man, a malevolent and extremely dangerous creature who appears in human-esque form, stands well over seven feet tall. He is dressed in a black suit, has a faceless, hairless head with long arms and legs that extend well past that of a human's, and when angered, tentacle-like appendages protrude from his back. He is known to aggressively stalk his targets, and when he catches you, you will be impaled to a tree have all of your organs removed, and he will keep them in bags. If he is feeling generous, he will simply take you and vanish to a far-off destination. No one knows where, so being gutted may actually be the better option. How will you know if Slenderman is near? Just keep an eye on your television, cell phone, or any other electronic device because his presence will surely cause static. This, of course, is all fiction. Slenderman was created in 2009 by a man named Eric Knudsen, who entered two photos of this nightmare into a Photoshop contest. Slenderman quickly became a cult favorite, which has been turned into short stories, YouTube videos, and feature films. Many of us will read about Slenderman and then go about our day as we understand the difference between fact and fiction. However, for two 12-year-old girls in the state of Wisconsin, Slenderman was very much real. So real that they decided to offer him 
a human sacrifice. Peyton Leitner, known to family and friends as Bella, was a happy social butterfly who wanted to please everyone. In fourth grade, she befriended Morgan Geyser, a self-described outcast who loved fantasy and Harry Potter. They were inseparable and would often stay after class to help their favorite teachers straighten up the classroom. The girls would often pretend that Voldemort, from the Harry Potter series, would be chasing them during lunch and recess. When they reached the sixth grade, a third girl joined their duo. Anissa Ware soon established herself within the group, and although Bella and Anissa were friendly, it was Morgan who became her best friend as they lived in the same apartment complex and would take the bus together to school. Now a trio, the girls were not a popular bunch, but Bella was the most popular of the three, with Morgan and Anissa described as misfits. They all shared an obsession with cats, and Bella would often go to school with whiskers drawn on her cheeks. It was through this friendship between Morgan and Anissa that they began to dive deeper into fantasy, who would develop a taste for the macabre and the explicit. They began searching through the internet and came across a page called Creepypasta, a forum which people share scary stories, memes, and short videos. This is where Morgan and Anissa met Slenderman. For the next several months, Morgan and Anissa would write about, draw pictures of, and role-play scenarios about Slenderman. They would dive so deep into this world that Slenderman would become as real as the person sitting next to them. Bella, however, didn't share their same passion, as she was content with role-playing scenes from Star Trek and Harry Potter. Morgan and Anissa would devise a plan to pay homage to Slenderman, with the hopes that he would spare his wrath and welcome them into his inner circle. A plan that involved a human sacrifice. A plan to kill Bella. On Friday, May 30th, 2014, the day before Morgan's birthday, Bella and Morgan stayed after school together to help their teacher. They then went to Morgan's house, along with Anissa, for a sleepover for Morgan's 12th birthday. They went to the local roller skating rink until about 9.30 and returned to Morgan's where they just lounged around playing on their iPads and tablets. This is when the plan was to be put in full effect, but Morgan was tired so they fell asleep. In the morning, they played dress up. Bella was a princess, Morgan was a character from Star Trek, and Anissa created her own character, a prosty troll, which is half prostitute, half troll, giving a glimpse into the far advanced fantasy of a young girl who craved to be a servant to a powerful being. They had some donuts and strawberries before Morgan asked her mother if they could all go out and play. The girls walked to David's Park, a roughly two and a half acre area with a small playscape, baseball field, and public restrooms. As they walked along, with Bella in the front and Morgan and Anissa following behind, Morgan showed Anissa a kitchen knife that she had taken from the house. After spending some time in the playscape, 
the girls walked to the public restroom, and once inside, the two girls attacked Bella. Morgan tried to hold her down, while Anissa half-heartedly pushed Bella's head against a brick wall, because they had read on creepypasta that it's easier to kill someone if they are unconscious. Just as suddenly, Morgan got cold feet and began singing and pacing the bathroom floor. Anissa told Bella to go outside and tried to calm Morgan down by petting her like a cat. It is assumed that Bella brushed off the attack as some sort of violent role-playing because she stayed with the girls and they all went to the forest to play hide-and-seek. In the woods, the girls were running around and Anissa tackled Bella to the ground but was unable to hold her there. When Morgan found them, she handed the knife to Anissa as Bella was picking flowers. Anissa lost the nerve and handed it back, saying, Go ballistic. Go crazy. Morgan told her that she wasn't going to do it unless Anissa really wanted her to do it. As Anissa took a few steps away, she swung back around and yelled, Kitty, now! Morgan pushed over Bella and said, Don't be afraid. I'm only a little kitty cat, and whispered that she was sorry in her ear. She then proceeded to stab Bella for a total of 19 times. Bella screamed, I hate you, I trusted you, as she tried to stand but fell back to the ground. Anissa brought her deeper into the woods and left her for dead. They went to the local Walmart store, where they washed in the sink and refilled their water bottles. They walked around town for a couple of hours, with the intention of running away to Slenderman's mansion, which they believed was in Nicolette National Forest in northern Wisconsin, about a five-hour drive away, but they were picked up by the police. What's the address of your emergency? Waukesha County Linnium, transfer over a caller on Big Bend, at the dead end, just south of Rivera. Okay. Came upon a 12-year-old female. She appears to be stabbed. She appears to be what? Stabbed. Stabbed? Okay. Sir, you still there? Yes. Hi, sir. So, is are you with this 12-year-old female? Yeah, she says she's having trouble breathing. She said she was stabbed multiple times. Stabbed multiple times? Yeah. Bella was alive. After the girls left, she dragged herself to a bicycle path near the road, and a passing cyclist found her. She was clinging to life. She was stabbed in the arms, legs, stomach, liver, pancreas, and within a millimeter of her heart. As she was being rushed to the hospital, she was able to give a description of Morgan and Anissa and what had happened. The girls were brought to the police station and separated into two different rooms. They each began to blame the attempted murder on each other, not realizing that Bella had already told them what happened. When asked why they tried to kill Bella, they went on to tell the tale of Slenderman. Anissa appeared to be more sympathetic and realizing her reality while Morgan was still very deep into the fantasy. It was weird. I felt no remorse. I thought I would. People who trust you become very gullible. And it was sort of sad. When the detective asked her how many times she thought she stabbed Bella, Morgan replied, I don't know. I didn't know I was supposed to count. Both girls would be tried as adults for attempted murder. 
the parents of Bella agreed to a plea deal. In 2017, Morgan was sentenced to 40 years in a mental institution, and Anissa, 25 years. Anissa would be released in September of 2021, with the conditions that she wear a GPS ankle monitor and avoid contact with Bella until at least the year 2039. For Morgan, she was diagnosed as having schizophrenia, and to this day, it is said she very much believes Slenderman will one day take her away to the land unknown. Bella still struggles with the emotional and physical pain and will require numerous plastic surgeries when she becomes a full adult. For months, she slept with scissors under her pillow and fears for her life on a daily basis. It has taken her time to slowly acclimate herself to being around people. For Bella, Slenderman became a reality. But instead of a black suit and lanky arms, he came in the form of a friend. Producers for this episode are Christine Rivera, Beth Davis, Dusty J. Hicks, and Terry Burke Wallen. Associate producers are Paul Hodge, Tara Mazur, Chantal Daggett, Jay Rollins, Courtney Sutton, and Donnie Blake. Producers are J.D., Trent Gobble, Devin Dean, Ashley O'Connor, Lisa Perello, Alicia Knight, Maria Sleen, Chris Owen, Justin Ware, Emily White, Ian Turner, Jessica Vibe, and Renee Prada. Intro and outro music by David Mercurio. Be sure to follow Cruel AF on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, X, and YouTube. Check out all of our merch and many other items at CruelAFShop.com.